Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling. And I'm Doug Stewart. And we're joined today by Jeffrey Tucker, the Director of Content at the Foundation for Economic Education. Jeffrey is here to talk to us today about Pope Francis's recent comments attacking libertarianism. In late April, the Pope, in an address to the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences, stated that libertarians are radically selfish and deny the common good. He also claimed that they are antisocial and think that relationships limit freedom. He said that libertarians believe only individuals can give value and decide good and evil, and that libertarianism is invading culture, schools, and the universities. Lastly, he stated that libertarianism promises a beautiful life, but that this promise is deceptive. Now, Jeffrey, you actually have a book titled A Beautiful Anarchy, which was recently released in Spanish. Right. Uh, so it's, well, it, it was a weird experience for me because I first saw this you know, public announcement that the Pope had criticized libertarianism. And, you, you, you know, as a Catholic, you learn to be a little suspicious of these kinds of claims when they're first made by the media. It was very common under the pontificate of John Paul II and Benedict XVI that you would hear the, the New York Times, the Pope blasts capitalism. And then you go to the actual statement, and it turns out to be a much more nuanced understanding and uh, never quite what the press said it was. So I was when I heard about the statement, I was desperate to look for the original uh, for the original uh, statement, and uh, I found it over at the the Vatican uh, site for the uh, Pontifical Council for the so- Social Sciences, I guess it's called, which is which is something of. Um, you know, I don't know what to say about that organization. I mean, it's it's something of a slush fund for academics that the church wants to pretend to be associated with. You know, it's <laughs> I've known several people on it, and it's you know, it's one of those classic cases of you know high prestige, low influence. You know, but anyway, so the Pope is speaking there, and sure enough, he goes right after libertarianism. And as I began to read the statement, I started getting a kind of a creepy feeling because um, there's several portions of it that that actually seemed oh, strangely familiar to me and and it seemed to be directed against my book in particular and uh, I thought well I, I you know I had to blink blink a little bit I thought well am I actually being personally criticized by the Pope and you know I can't prove it but I asked the publisher and he said well obviously what what other prominent libertarian and 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 uh, you know with a Spanish language book out and obviously the Pope and all of his translators and all of his speechwriters are are Spanish uh, you know, uses this kinds of language, this kind of language. It's, it, you know, almost at every point, it seems to be directed against your new book, which is a big seller in Spain uh, and and over Latin America called A Beautiful Anarchy. So I thought, oh, this is great. I, you know, 
I mean, I, I I was delighted about it, of course, and I, I immediately changed the cover photo on my Facebook page to the trial of Galileo, you know, <laughs> 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 which is absurd. Although if I had gotten the Galileo treatment, I think I would have been very happy because Galileo, once he was proved proved a heretic, was given a, a villa in Rome and, and allowed to live out his, his days writing books and, and reading, you know, with with a team of researchers. So it wouldn't have been so bad, but... <laughs> but uh, no, but it, it, it was amazing to see, I, 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 I don't know, is this the first papal statement that directly names libertarianism, uh, you know, as an enemy of the faith? I, I think it might be. So it's, it's, it is rather significant for, uh, for, for, for Catholics. Yeah, and what we've seen with Pope Francis, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a Protestant. Doug, Doug is broadly a Protestant. Uh, so we're certainly not experts on the Catholic Church and Catholic theology, but, you know, what we've seen from Pope Francis has been a very kind of precise attack on free market economics and, and, and various things in, in a way that's, to my understanding, relatively unprecedented. So this yeah. this does seem to kind of be um, a, a major focus of his. It I, is, yeah, it is weird. I, I, I mean, he's definitely uh, almost obsessed with issues of political economy, which is an area that's obviously outside of his competence. You know, I, I don't entirely unwelcome uh, Francis, though, I must tell you, in, in other areas of, of church governance, he, he has actually been, and I hope I'm using this this term accurately, a liberalizing force uh, in, in some some ancient aspects of church law that really desperately need to be addressed for pastoral reasons. Uh, he's been a little bit of a radical, and I and I have appreciated some of his you know suggested changes. You know, I got to tell you, it, change in the Catholic Church is very difficult. Uh, you've got a body of law, and and maybe this is this is a good thing, you know. But there's a body of law called canon law, and 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 the church has its own court system and all catholics are obliged to, uh, to comply with the law and and some of it is just like any body of law filled with such amazing cruft from the past that it, it makes life very very difficult and francis has been somewhat courageous in sort of taking issue with uh, with with some of this particularly as it pertains uh, divorce and remarriage and some other some other uh, hot button issues um but on on issues of of, of political economy, I mean, look, he, he's just wedded to something like a socialist paradigm, and and not just casually. You know, this isn't just a kind of a you know a dopey socialist uh, talking. I mean, he seems, yeah, I think you're right, really focused on uh, what he thinks is the problem with economic liberalism, and 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 seems to be you know attacking it all the time. And and I think to this extent, yeah. I mean, first of all, if he's departing with with uh, tradition of the post-conciliar popes, uh, for for certain, um, and <clears throat> now you know, I I made an argument in my piece that that he's really departing from from a, a long tradition that that dates from the from the uh, uh, late medieval uh, period uh, up to up to uh, Second Vatican Council. You know, I should be clear, though, that, you know, the Catholic Church 
so-called teaching on this matter is very, it's a very mixed bag. So you have some very good stuff from the libertarian point of view, and then you have some very bad stuff from the libertarian point of view. I mean, so you can tell the story with two different, you know, conflicting plot, plot lines. What bugged me most about the statement was was not so much that he has his own views. You know, that's that's fine. Every every, every pope, you know, has a certain a certain political bias. I mean, Benedict was something like a, a conservative communitarian. You know, you could regard uh, John Paul II as something like a neoliberal, and 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 so on. Uh, but what bothered me is is this sort of seeming anathema, if you know what that term means, and and in church history, he anathematized uh, libertarianism, you know, as if it's it's not permitted to believe it. Like there, there's something inherently immoral, and and that outlook is is a, a real departure for the church. One of the things that you pointed out in in your piece. I mean, it it seems like the the way the Pope describes his understanding of libertarianism is a very caricatured understanding. It's it's probably not how hardly anyone listening to this show, uh, or or you or me or or Doug or anyone else here, would understand libertarianism. He, it it basically seemed like what he what he did was he kind of took a a form of atheistic objectivism. And put the worst possible spin on it, and said, "This is libertarianism." And then he denounces that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would denounce that as well, uh, but but yeah. that's not my understanding of. Yeah, and I don't even think that I don't even think it would apply to his 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 caricatures. It doesn't even apply to to objectivism. Even I mean, it's not as if Ayn Rand denied the importance of you know cooperating with others, you know, or. Uh, you know, was some sort of you know aggressive you know uh, elitist. I guess you could you could call her an ethical individualist, but uh, you know denying that community matters. I don't think she would have ever done that. I mean, I th I think what you have here is just really just a pure cartoon version of all the opponents of liberalism, uh, you know, from from the seventeenth uh, or eighteenth centuries all the way up to present. I mean, it's. You know, it's always been the case that every time the liberal tradition asserts the rights of individuals, um, or or free speech, or, or freedom of religion, or something like that, you know, the opponents of this perspective start screaming, "Well, you know, so you just want individuals to run around believing, saying whatever they want, doing whatever they want." I mean, that you know, this is this perspective is at war with our community understanding of and our, our, our culture uh, you know the nation uh, the destiny of our people blah 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 i mean this is this is this this line of attack has been going on for many many centuries as generally targeting the liberal tradition the liberal tradition that the church once championed i should add you know so so you know, against the the opponents of of Catholicism, so uh, you know, I find this very disturbing. Uh, let me also just add a, a, a slight footnote here on terminology, which I think is really important. Um, you know, when the when the Pope attacks libertarianism, I mean, there's still a sense in which the sort of vernacular use of that term is associated with a certain degree of political exoticism. You know, uh, it's 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 a neologism. Uh, you know, uh, in the post-war period, uh, it's got a lot of syllables. People don't always know what it means. It it it, it pertains to a lot of issues and ideas and. 
And, and so for that reason, because it doesn't really have a firm cultural association with it, uh, people associate it with, with something just generally bad or, or, or dangerous. Not always, but a lot of the time. So, for example, if, if the Pope had attacked, instead of libertarianism, had attacked the liberal tradition, you know, uh, of which libertarianism is certainly a, a, a part, if not synonymous, uh, he, it, his attack would not have been nearly as um, effective. So I, I think that was that was by design, really. You know, this article that the Pope you know denounces libertarianism as as many things do coming came across my news feed in Facebook, and I you know I read the article. I don't even remember the source, but it was a little agonizing to read because. All I read was a description of a philosophy that I identify with, but a description that just totally yeah. just went off. And, you know, that kind yeah. of thing kind of makes my blood boil a little bit because I get kind no. of tired of hearing it. And, you know, you, you've heard and you've you've espoused your own, um, you know, way of putting libertarianism. And I know that, you know, every libertarian has their own, you know, sort of nuanced way of doing of explaining it. Why do you think that this is a very, I would say, rampant misunderstanding of libertarians? I mean, we do emphasize the individual in, in one sense. On the other, it just seems like nobody understands what we mean. Yeah, I know. Well, and again, this is there's nothing new about this. This has been going on for, for centuries. It's been the burden of the liberal, liberal tradition since the Scottish, Scottish Enlightenment and, and before to explain to people that the interests of the individual and the interests of the community are not inconsistent, but rather uh, share a, a, a mutual benefit and an aspiration for the good of all. The, the good of one is not inconsistent with the good of all. Okay, that that is a difficult idea. It just is. There's a reason why liberalism emerged so late in, in human history because because that's it's hard to understand, and I, I think it's very easy for people to fall back into. Uh, you know, a kind of individualist antinomianism, you know, which means a kind of a lawless, autonomous individualism as versus a, a kind of coercive uh, collectivism. Uh, you know, I think people tend to toggle between the two. Well, the correct liberal libertarian understanding of, of the relationship between the two is essentially we need each other. The collective absolutely needs the individual to, to, to function well. And the individual absolutely needs the the collective to in order to realize his or her aspirations in life. So they go together. And the key thing uh, that the liberal tradition argues is that that the benefit of both the individual and the community are maximized under conditions of human freedom when you don't have a a centrally planned, uh, centrally planned, uh, imposed plan from the from the top. And look. Uh, Folks, this is just a really difficult message, and and it, we we can never rest in saying it. I mean, if if people got it the first time, we 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 would have been able to shut up uh, in the 18th century at some point. <laughs> but for some reason, you know, uh, every generation needs to hear it all over again. I mean, this is what you guys do. This is what I do every single day. I write a different version of the same message. The interest of the individual and the interest of the community are not inconsistent. They're mutually reinforcing. That makes it sound even more worthwhile. You know, it's not a cheap idea. It's it's really valuable to grasp and understand it because it's enriching and it's a rewarding way of looking at the world. 
Well, that's right. And it's, it's, it's an intellectual adventure to discover, you know, all the ways in which that's true. And I, the, that's why I say I never get tired of seeing it and saying it. That's, that's all I do. I mean, that is, I got intrigued with that idea in college, and I, I've just never stopped being fascinated with all the ways in which it's, it's true. So, yeah, it does get frustrating when some, some uh, influential, powerful person stands up in a microphone and says a bunch of uh, caricatured nonsense about what we believe. And, and, well, what it does is inspires us to, you know, double down again and, and explain uh, these things. I mean, the burden of uh, the, what I tried to do in my article was it was just to say to the Pope, look, the church has many statements in its past that are completely consistent with what the libertarian tradition believes. Uh, so, you know, don't go around anathematizing us. You should uh, you should actually uh, think more carefully about what you know the the, the libertarian strains more than a strain uh, in Catholic history actually has to say. Well, and along those lines, Jeffrey, in Catholic thought, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong, the Pope can only speak authoritatively on matters of theology, right? So when he's making a <laughs> statement about economics or yeah. uh, political economy, that really shouldn't carry any more weight. For a Catholic than something they read in the New York Times, like a Paul Krugman article, is that is that fair to say? <laughs> well, you can have a lot of respect for the guy and and that sort of thing, but no, it doesn't. As 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 we say, it doesn't bind your conscience. You know, you're not you're not bound to believe it just because the Pope says this. Um, this was in, in a very fascinating way a question put to the test. In the late 19th century, first Vatican Council, which hardly anybody talks about, but it was a really important moment. Uh, you probably know it as the as the council that 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 finally codified and entrenched, you know, the doctrine of papal infallibility. But you know, Catholic history is complicated. What actually happened to that council is fascinating. This this very interesting pope named Pope Pius the Ninth who began his life in his pontificate as a kind of a liberal in the classical sense. I mean, a, really a, a genuine good guy. You know, there was a, but it was a period in the 1880s when the church started losing the papal states. There was a lot of rebellion. There was a rise of democracy, the rise of socialism, and even the communist agitation. And there were some terror, terror groups, uh, you know, uh, alive in Italy. And his secretary of state where something was shot out of the window of the Vatican. And the Pope, you know, had to go running for his life down the street, you know, <clears throat> and he came back loaded for bear. And he, he dispensed with his old liberalism and decided it was time for a massive crackdown to stop to stop the, the, the rise of liberalism, democracy, democracy, socialism, whatever you want to call it. And so he, he called a church council. And this is a very tedious and long church council. And nobody knew what, what the heck they were doing there, particularly not the American bishops. Uh, rainy, cold, everybody was sick. And it just went on forever. And also, it didn't help that everything was in Latin, right? So, uh, but anyway, as we approached the end of the council, it 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 became obvious to everybody what it is that Pius IX was wanting. He wanted the church to make a declaration of infallibility, and he wanted it to pertain to himself on doctrine, on morals, and, if you can believe it, on politics. He was looking for the papacy itself to be declared 
politically infallible. Uh, that was what Pius IX wanted. And of course, when you ask for something like this, you're not asking for it just for yourself and your successors. You're asking for it retroactively throughout the whole of Christian history. So, so uh, which is just unbelievably dangerous and ridiculous claim. You know, the idea that popes have always been politically infallible. I mean, please. Uh, I mean, it's 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 it strains credulity enough to to claim it on doctrine and morals, <laughs> but to, for politics. So all the opponents of this of political infallibility had to do was dredge up you know a history of of unbelievable bloodshed and and horror in in the history of Catholic Christianity <laughs> to show that this can't possibly be right. Uh, papal infallibility was rejected at the First Vatican Council, and the fallback position, which was in fact a humiliation to Pope Pius IX, was that the Church's infallibility was narrowly restricted to doctrine, to matters of doctrine and doctrine and matters of morality, which had been the widespread understanding for you know a very long time in history. So it was actually. Vatican I is, is widely seen as a, as a council that, that, that gave birth to the idea of papal infallibility, but a deeper look shows that it was, in fact, the council that absolutely and finally repudiated uh, political infallibility and thereby, you know, the, the power of the papacy to wield the sword uh, in, in a violent way. Uh, to coerce people against against their will uh, with with the power of the state, so that's what was rejected. In other words, Vatican I really ended up, despite the Pope's intention, embracing liberalism as we understand that uh, concept today. So I hope that wasn't too much history. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. Anyway, you're right. The Pope, the Pope's infallibility is narrowly restricted. He can only bind your conscience on matters of doctrine. You know whether whether Jesus was both God and man, and you know whether or, you know what goes on a consecration, how many sacraments there are, and so on, so on, and matters of <clears throat> morality, whether you should kill, still, you know uh, that sort of thing. But but on politics, yeah, these guys have their opinions. It it doesn't matter either way for 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 believers. You know, one of the things that I've appreciated most in my probably about decade of becoming and maintaining my strong libertarian stance has been some of your work, some of the ways that you look at the world and you describe things in such a beautiful, you're very fascinated by what you experience from day to day and you write about it and it gives, it gives a, I don't even know how to put it. It gives a visual to a libertarian world or a world where people are free to make what they want, to buy what they want, to, you know, go to places that they would like to go to. Every time I have trouble with my gas can, I think of you because you wrote about, you know, how right. horrible the state has made our lives <laughs> right. in that area. Or, you know, the other day we're remodeling our bathroom and, you know, I drilled in my shower head and I thought of you. I was like, well, if it weren't for Jeffrey Tucker, my life would be worse off. So, All right, that's you know, great. I, I'm so glad. I, I love it so much when I can write something that actually penetrates a, into a person's daily life. Uh, and I look for ways to do that, you know. Um, so that's why I write about all these these weird topics because I I really do I mean I look I'm personally flattered by the idea that you know when people are stepping in the shower in the morning they're they're, they're saying thank God for Jeffrey Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. and along those lines, you know, Jeffrey, I actually saw you speak in person probably about eight years ago or so. It was it was at a a Mises Circle event, and I remember you you talked. It was I think this was right after Bourbon for Breakfast came out and yeah. you, you you talked quite a bit about 
shower heads. And I still remember that to this day. So, <laughs> so yes, your, your, your impact is wide ranging. Uh, I can't, you know, and I, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I look for regular mundane things to write about. And, you know, I remember when this happened to me slightly because, you know, uh, when I first sort of got interested in the subject of libertarianism, I, 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 yeah, I spent, I don't, it seems like a year is probably a month, you know how time gets mixed up when you're young, but uh, trying to figure out, am I conservative or am I a libertarian? You know that, I don't know, does everybody go through that? I couldn't decide. And so I, I read every kind of book, and, and libertarianism was always treated as this kind of abstraction that was stemming from a series of syllogisms or assertions about positive and negative rights and all the rest of it, you know. And that's sort of where I, I had left things in my, in my life for the longest time until uh, at some point I realized uh, something really important that this wasn't just – liberty wasn't just some sort of – some abstraction, some intellectual puzzle. It really was about how we live our lives and that liberty is really all around us. Our freedom to act and to choose – is something that's really baked into the human experience. And if you look for signs of that around you, you can actually find ways to be amazed at all the mundane aspects of life. And once I kind of personally discovered that, uh, life has never stopped being absolutely fascinating. In other words, I, I, I knit together in my own mind real-time human experience with high philosophy and i saw that there was a bridge between the two and and ever since then i just can't stop crossing that bridge back and forth back and forth all the time <laughs> so that's 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 how my brain works and and what what keeps me thinking and writing every day i'm glad you enjoy it because i, I know many of your readers do i'm sure you hear that feedback a lot it's one of those things where you may be underappreciated <laughs> in that way. I mean, we all appreciate it, but don't ever stop doing that. I mean, you just wrote about fidget spinners. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. My wife and I were sitting in bed last night, both each reading it on our on our phones, and we're just like, "Wow!" I mean, that's a, sorry, this is a bad pun. That's a that's a different spin on this. Um, <laughs> but it's you know, that, uh, that are, oh, it, I started it off. I do this to myself. Uh, uh, sometimes because I, I always I, I figure I'm going to come up with something in the end that's that's a, a little bit uh, outlandish. Because I know this from experience. I don't intend it that way. But I, I, I set that up as a, a writing project and a thinking project for me. But, you know, it's like here is a very, very popular thing with a gigantic market um, all over the world. It's swept it's swept uh, boardrooms and, and public school classrooms. Teachers are banning the thing. I wanted to know what is behind this thing and why is it so interesting? Well, you know, what if I tried to speculate about that? And it sounds dumb, um, but I set out to really think about it. And and then I think of writing as like a hunt. You know, I'm, I was like on a hunt uh, to, to try to find the key. By the time I, I dug myself out from under that article, I had actually persuaded myself. So... That article has a sardonic maybe feel to it because I deliberately wrote it and with a with a Hegelian sensibility, you know. Um, but but actually, I got to tell you, I found myself persuaded by my own rhetoric by the end, you know. And I was like, my goodness, you know. And times such as ours, we desperately need, uh, you know, things we can hold individually between our fingers and 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 drive from inaction to to action <clears throat> through the use of our own. 
uh, human volition and choice, you know, the, as a way of affirming uh, so the very essence of what makes us human. And I realized this was true. And, okay, you could say, well, that's not true about the fidget spinner. Well, maybe it's not true, but I think I, I tried to make my best case, and I, I got to tell you, I believe it. Well, and even if it's not true what you said, and by the way, listeners, go go and read the article. We'll post it on our show notes page. Even if it's not true specifically about fidget spinners, your observation that we want we it is our impulse to have uh, somewhere where we can control and have autonomy is it's where we is can matter. Definitely yeah. true. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah, it's where we can matter. I mean, it's it, my kids are into it right now, and. So, yeah, no, you, you put a you put a practical <laughs> spin. Well, we just my son ordered one and then my kid, my daughters, they want one. So we ordered one yesterday and then I read your article and I'm like, oh, well, this is great. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, I love trends like this, you know, and this one of the fun aspects of human life is, you know, it never stops evolving and changing. You know, that's just the, the, the nature of uh, the, the structure of the world. And and these these funny these funny kid trends, you know, they, they seem to be moving on a on a six to nine month schedule, you know. So yeah. uh, and I was I was really unhappy about this because I I had written about bottle flipping, a very compelling article about bottle flipping. And then I guess I just wasn't paying attention. And so the edible slime trend, you know, blew right by me. You know, and I never even had an article about the topic. And sure enough, just when edible slime is on its way out, uh, you know, I, I became aware of it, and I can't, and I, and I was made aware that the new thing was fidget spinning. And so I thought I was just determined to write, you know, the the theoretical uh, treatise on this one, since I was, I felt a sense of disgrace that I had never even one time ventured to write about edible slime at all. You know, so. <laughs> by, by the way, this this desire to sort of chronicle the uh, the life of our times through the lens of liberty. You know, I got this. I got this. I have to credit my my mentor, Murray Rothbard. He was this way. He he was <laughs> he would wake up with just this wild passion to want to document what the heck was happening all around him and why it mattered. I mean, <laughs> and and he was that way. And I caught that bug from him. You know, I, uh, I have a Catholic friend who taught me something that resonates with me and is the phrase matter matters. And it, what you just said sort of reminded me of that because what we do every day with our hands, with things like fidget spinners and <laughs> edible slime and things like that, or, or, or mowing our yard or taking a shower or just a way of looking at the world in a very tangible, practical way, it does take the libertarianism and, and it puts it on the ground and it makes it something that is within our grasp, within our comprehension, instead of having to be the kind of people that are all cerebral and thinking about it in sort of an academic, you know, aspect to it. And obviously, you're so right. You you said that you go back and forth, you know, thinking about it in both both kinds of ways. In your article, you do sort of venture your own definition of what a libertarian is. Do you I mean, did that something that you you know, kind of came up with as you wrote it, or has that been something you've yeah. been? No, saying? I. It's well, it's uh, it, it is the way I think about the subject. Uh, but yeah, I did craft that. Maybe it's my first time I've ever done that. I did try. I t- attempted to craft a definition uh, f- uh, for the, for the article because I, I I really knew this article would be circulated very widely, and in fact, it has been translated to German, French, Portuguese, Spanish. Uh, Hebrew, even you know, so That's it's all over the place. Yeah, so I wanted I wanted that to be a kind of uh, definition. Also, I didn't so much want it to be my own, but it's something that that the liberal tradition generally could embrace. You know, uh, you know, everybody from David Hume up to uh, you know today's contemporary uh, libertarians. I wanted a, a broad enough statement, 
because uh, I do think we we do have a consistent tradition, you know, and yeah, we disagree on you know a whole range of issues day to day, and you know, there's endless debates about you know natural rights, what are they, you know, versus consequentialism, blah blah blah. Uh, libertarians disagree all the time, but we do are united on on the general view that society can manage itself better. Uh, you know, on behalf of individuals and communities, when when left alone by uh, by higher authority, when the, when the, the course of inter- intervention does not disturb our 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 plans and our and our efforts to discover ever more uh, uh, fuller, more richer, more flourishing ways to live, essentially. And I think that's something that we can we can all agree with. And and really, I don't think libertarianism is claiming. Uh, any more than that, you know, and I, that's why I don't. I don't think it's good to think of libertarian. Look, I'm an anarchist. Obviously, I'm somewhat of an exotic figure, right? But, but I don't think that it's right to think about libertarianism as being a stranger or a weird thing that invades the academy. You know, that invades our culture, as, as the Pope put it. We're not invaders, and we're speaking on behalf of a, a really beautiful and grand tradition. And this is why it was such a delight to me to dig through uh, Catholic Church history and find all kinds of statements that really beautifully illustrated the principle. I mean, I began with Thomas Aquinas, you know, and he's asked the question, uh, uh, is it the job of the state to uh, suppress vice? And he says, well, it depends. Um, uh, it's it's a hopeless undertaking to try to su- suppress every vice that every minority uh, might uh, might uh, get involved in because because uh, you know that won't amount to anything and it'll it'll cause more harm in the long run. Um, however, those things that everybody agrees, most everybody agrees, are generally wrong. Uh, things such as theft and murder and such like, it is the job of the state to suppress. Okay, so so in this one statement, St. Thomas basically lays out you know, a paradigm of, of classical liberalism. The state should restrain itself to only doing those things that are generally doable and achievable, <laughs> namely, you know, punishing theft, theft and murder. And I, uh, he doesn't say the state, says civic authorities. And I think that's right. Now, of course, St. Thomas himself doesn't apply this consistently because elsewhere in the, in the Summa Theologica, he's asked, is it okay for civic authorities to burn heretics? He said, well, of course. <laughs> so, you know, we're not, we're not talking about Murray Rothbard here, you know, but, but still, I, I think St. Thomas, that statement from St. Thomas shows that it's not exactly inconsistent with Catholic Church Tradition, and then I, of course, I just completely delighted in in quoting some of the anti-socialist statements of um, uh, of I, I have to remember now. I think it was Leo the Leo the um, I have to think about this Leo the Thirteenth, I believe, um, from the from the eighteen seventies. You know, that was condemning socialism uh, as a demonic doctrine. And then my favorite statement that I dragged up, and I'm not even sure I had read this. Uh, there's a lot of material in Vatican II uh, that, that has a lot of very good ideas in there. I, I like uh, I like um, uh, many many documents from that, uh, that council, but there's in particular the I, I know as as Protestants, you guys are, are going to be mortified to hear this, I, I, and I, I hate to scandalize you, but but it wasn't until 1965 really that the the Catholic Church finally came to terms with with uh, the right to religious freedom. 
Um, which, I mean, you hear that and you think, you know, why did it take as long? Well, indeed. But it was a very decisive statement that the church made that every human being has the absolute right to religious freedom and a duty to follow his or her conscience uh, uh, in, in, in uh, thought, action, and association. And no one is permitted to coerce anybody against their own will so long as they're not harming others, okay? So, this is a statement by a church council. Uh, this is Dignitatis Humanae, okay? A, a, a beautiful statement on behalf of religious liberty, which, by the way, to this day, continues to scandalize uh, Catholic traditionalists because they, you know, they, you know, forever wanting to restore the monarchy and, and the power of the sword and that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, whether you agree with it or disagree with the statement, I certainly do. I think it was a revolutionary moment in Catholic history. This is a very clear statement, and I have it in my article, and I, I don't know if you read it, you it must have struck you. That's almost a perfect description of of kind of purist libertarian doctrine you know, concerning the rights of the individuals. Coming straight out of the Vatican, said with the highest magisterial authority that the church can possibly muster. You know, and one of the things that you had brought up earlier is this kind of false dichotomy that often happens with uh, the individual and the community. Well, they they benefit one another, right? I mean, you, you can't have community without without the individual, and the individuals were created to live in community. And so these things kind of go together. Uh, you know, Robert Nisbet uh, in, in The Quest for Community talked about how the state is kind of an an anti-human, anti-community institution. So, I mean, it would seem to me that if mm. if the Pope really wants to promote community and the the integration of, of peoples and human flourishing, uh, then he should set his sights against the state and in favor of the market. Would you agree with that? I absolutely would, and 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 there's a strong basis for this within Catholic history. I mean, I mean, the, the broad stroke of Catholic history uh, in terms of the role of of the papacy in in European politics, which is which is a complicated subject with lo lots of ebbs and flows. But <clears throat> the greatest contribution the papacy ever made to human rights and its history was to be a kind of countervailing power to uh, to the claims of the of princes and the nation state. and and I think that's the biggest contribution Catholicism ever made to human rights. I mean, think about it. Um, Catholicism is a universal religion, which necessarily means that it that what what applies to one person applies to the whole of humanity. Uh, that if you think that way, you're, you're going to have a very broad mind, you know, towards, towards human rights and, and human aspirations and, and human dignity uh, generally. So that's very important because for, for, for Catholicism, the rights of the individual do not derive from race, nationhood, language, or even nowadays religious uh, 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 allegiances but rather belong to everybody by virtue of their dignity they, they inherit uh, as by, because they're made in the image and likeness of God. So that is a very beautiful 
uh, assertion to make. And it, it turns out to have been ex- extremely important in restraining the power of princes uh, throughout uh, libertarian throughout uh, European history and and indeed throughout uh, 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 modern history and in fact and I think as 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 Protestant libertarians um, I mean you have reasons to regret just as I have many aspects of Catholic Catholic history to profoundly regret <laughs> but uh, one of the regrettable regrettable political uh, fallouts from from the from the Reformation was this loss of universal identity that Christianity had always had up until that point of time. Suddenly, uh, to be a loyal Christian meant to be a good, also to be a good German or, uh, you know, a, a good member of a, of a certain uh, geographic or racial or linguistic tribe. And and that, that I think, is a, a very unfortunate uh, turn. Now, there are obviously good aspects of the Reformation. I think the assertion of... Uh, you know the right of the individual to interpret uh, the Holy Scripture, uh, you know, as as his conscience leads him to, or as the uh, Holy Spirit leads him to. These are all good developments. But from a political point of view, the Reformation did unleash uh, a a lot of uh, really uh, big dangers on the world that the Catholic Church had up to that point in history suppressed, maybe not by intention, but by effect because of its very universalist. Um, outlook and and the fact that uh, the church, um, you know, wasn't really running a state in itself, but was rather, you know, served as kind of a countervailing power to the to the um, to the authority of, of of nations and 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 princes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that ring a bell with you? Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, and in fact, it we can really take this lesson all the way back to the time of of Constantine, right? When yeah. the state first started. Uh, inserting itself into the church uh, with with disastrous effect that that in some sense we're we're still living with uh, today. But throughout the Middle Ages, I mean, for, for our listeners who, who who maybe aren't familiar with the history, yeah, like like you said, the ecclesiastic authorities were the the main uh, the main competing institution against the the all encompassing power of. Of the state, and really, one of the things that we've experienced in modernity, and particularly with with the rise of of the total state, is all the competing institutions like church and yeah. family and business. They those all shrink as the state grows. It's the the, the nature of the state is to suppress any competing power center in society. Uh, that that would challenge its authority, and and that includes the church. So, I mean, one of, one of the things that's playing out right now that's very relevant to this is what's going on in Venezuela. So we we're seeing the the, the total upheaval of of where socialism leads, and of course we it's happened time and time again throughout history wherever socialism has been has been tried. I mean, it it it's untenable. It eventually breaks down into into chaos. Uh, Whereas yeah, no, I'm glad you're bringing that up because you know what what kind of effect would the Pope have instead of instead of hanging out in Rome denouncing libertarianism if he'd take a trip to Venezuela and denounce dictatorship and socialism? I mean, wouldn't that you know as John Paul II did in, in Poland and 
and and Cuba and many places around the world. I mean, where where is this where is this guy when you need him? You know, I think he could play have a very powerful spiritual influence on on the future of liberty in Latin America. That just as an aside. Well, and that's one of the things that that you mentioned as far as the the church in the twentieth century standing against uh, Nazism and communism alike, and and playing a pretty significant role in in the downfall of those those dictatorships. As we consider the trajectory of the world today, what what would your advice be to to, to any Christian listening, but but also particularly to your to your fellow Catholics or or to Pope Francis? How should the Church move forward? Be that I mean, I'm not just talking about the Catholic Church, but the universal Christian Church. How should the Church and Christians move forward in our relation to the state in order to start reclaiming uh, the the rich tradition of authentic Christian community that exists outside of state control, if that makes any sense. You know, I, okay, I'm going to give the most obvious answer, but it's, it's the most radical answer. Begin with the words of Christ. That's, that's the very core of what we believe. And it's so easy to get distracted by everything else, but absolutely the most profound teacher in the history of Christianity was Christ himself. And, uh, you know, that great, unbelievable moment when he's presented the Roman Roman coin and and he's asked, you know, to whom does this belong? And, and Jesus makes this sh- tremendously shocking statement in the ancient world where he, he, just, he just throws down the gauntlet and he says, some things belong to uh, Caesar and some things belong to to God. Now, th- this was this was the moment. This was the moment where we first began to imagine that there's a city of God and a city of man. When we began to realize that the the prince is not uh, the same thing as as our our our, our final ruler is not is not God. The Caesars are, are not gods on earth. Um, that there's a distinction between the state, uh, the affairs of the state, and and the affairs of the spirit. This is an amazing moment, and you know Jesus lived this throughout you know his life. It's, I I'm just constantly fascinated by by his life and how much confusion surrounded him. You know, many of his followers and during his during his ministry followed him because they thought he aspired to be an earthly king. Um, and you know, when he, when he came in from the desert after having been tempted by the devil and having gone on such a long fast, he was greeted with, with palms and celebration, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, you know, here's our, our King has arrived. Um, and then he was, and then he was crucified and, and, you know, as he was, as he was uh, hanging on the cross, most of his followers by now thought, well, I guess we bet on the wrong horse, you know. Uh, we wanted him to be our king, but clearly he's been defeated. So uh, let's forget about him. And his followers dwind- dwindled down to a precious few. Um, but then, that, but then, uh, three days later, rises from the dead and then ap- appears before his apostles. Uh, Jesus lives again, not as a king of this earth, but as the. Um, Rex Celestis, you know, the, the king of heaven. 
that's where our hearts are. That's 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 what should drive our conscience. That's where our loyalties ultimately reside, not in this world, but in um, in the transcendent realm, where you can find final truth. So so that's why I think ultimately, if you want to talk about a Christian libertarianism, that's that's the core of its conviction. You know. That that our our hearts are animated by and infused by a sense of uh, the spiritual realm as being our final authority, not the authority of princes, not kings, not presidents, not democracy or any other political system uh, that you want. And I think from that you can derive a conviction and a firm belief in in human freedom as as a, as a as as the right, true, and moral. Um, uh, system we should have on earth to prepare for the afterlife well i don't know if there's any better way to wrap up this show than to conclude on those words jeffrey thank you very much for being with us for this episode of the libertarian christian podcast <laughs> listen i don't get a chance to talk about this stuff very much so i can't thank you enough i really appreciate it well believe us you're welcome back here anytime i mean <laughs> this is this was quite a, a great moment uh, for us to be able to have you on. You know, you're you're really one of the the leading thinkers in the the overall liberty movement and and certainly the the libertarian Christian movement. So you know, we're tremendously blessed to to have had you here with us today. Let's let's let's, let's hang out again sometime and and uh, talk about the parables of Christ because I think I think you can pr pretty much find out everything you need to know about economics and liberty from those. So let's do it again. That sounds great. That's all the time we have today on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email podcast at libertarianchristians.com or use the contact form on libertarianchristians.com. You can also support us by going to libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.